Welcome to Paint Ed. PCA provides painting contractors with connections they need to grow their business. To find out more and to become a member, visit PCAPainted.org. Find more great content like this on PCA Overdrive. A subscription to the platform is included with membership. For all of you non-members out there, sign up for a free trial. PCA Overdrive is available on the App Store and Google Play. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Contractor Evolution. This is Benji, and I'm joined by Igor here in the studio. Building wealth for the long term is no doubt a big part of why you started your company in the first place. Now, there are other more meaningful whys, of course. There's freedom, flexibility, legacy, personal growth, creating opportunities for others. But we'd be lying to ourselves if getting rich one day wasn't also on that list. One part of the wealth building story for contractors that doesn't really get a whole lot of airtime in our modern thoughtosphere is risk mitigation. The affluent person you want to become doesn't get to where they are simply by making successful bets all the time. The part you don't see are the huge losses they avoid because shit happens. And so limiting downside is equally, if not more important than the pursuit of growth. Now, smart entrepreneurs know this really well, and they put systems, they put policies and tools in place to limit their downside and to protect themselves from the trajectory-ruining events that life can truly be full of. So this is why today we have Danielle Slavin on the show with us. She is a senior portfolio manager at RBC Dominion Securities. She's a CFA, a chartered financial analyst, uh, and she's been for the last 16 years. And she and her team of six help blue-collar business owners just like us preserve and prudently grow the wealth that they've extracted from their businesses. So today, we're going to talk about the somewhat morbid but still very, very important ways to protect your wealth from things like death, from divorces, from serious illnesses, and a whole host of other threats to your long-term prosperity. So by the end of this episode, you're going to have a really good roadmap on a number of things that you should take action on if you haven't already. So let's dive in with Danielle. You're watching Contractor Evolution, where we unpack the systems, tactics, and skills you need to take your fast-growing contracting business to the next level. You're here to learn what it takes to scale up, work less, and increase profitability. You've come to the right place. Stay tuned to learn what separates the new breed of contractor from the old school, and welcome to your ultimate guide on the business of contracting. Danielle, thanks for being here. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Danielle, I got a uh, questioning, opening question here for you. So most entrepreneurs, we're having a lot of fun in what we're doing. We're focused on our business, on our families, on our adventures. Life is really quite busy. Um, in your experience, uh, why is there so such little time that's that's put into these kind of topics for most business owners? Yeah, so I think it's pretty natural. I mean, I think even if you look at it outside of an entrepreneurial concept, but just think about it from any individual, we tend to put a bigger emphasis on growth, right? About building revenue, increasing profitability. Totally. We're just focused on the positives. And that's a good thing because on average, optimists make more money than pessimists. So I'm not saying you <laughs> should spend all your time thinking about the risks. Um, but certainly it is something that is pretty natural. We focus more on growth. Um, if we use an example from an investment standpoint, I remember years ago, reading an article in the CFA magazine, and it was referencing Benjamin Graham. If you don't know who Benjamin yep. Graham is, he was famously known as Warren Buffett's teacher. Um, but basically what this quote said is it said that many people suffer the misconception that the best way to make big money is to take big risk. Mm. And what Benjamin Graham actually showed is that avoiding big losses or yep. some level of protection is a precondition to sustaining a high compound rate of growth. And so when we think about an investment context, too often we don't put enough emphasis on protecting on the downside, yeah. right? And an entrepreneur, it's the same thing when we look at a business. We're doing all these phenomenal things to grow the business, but are we being mindful of the few things that could completely derail the growth that we have enjoyed up to that point? Um, so it's a natural phenomenon that we, we just don't think about these things in, in real time. And yeah. part of it is we're too busy, right? Like you mentioned Benjamin Graham, you know, uh, Charlie Munger, who's yeah. his partner, is, yeah. is, is one of my favorite quotes of his, and I've said it many times, is is it's it's easier to avoid stupidity than it is to seek brilliance. And it's just like, <laughs> it's, a, it's a funny way of making the same yeah. comment. Like when we think about 
uh, long-term success, there's sort of a tendency to think you need to hit a home run at every swing. And it's like, you just want to avoid this, the painful strikeouts in yeah. big spots. I think that that's a, a, a nice framing of the whole thing. Yeah. And in that analogy, right, you'd be more focused on like base hits, right. Yeah. Instead of home runs. Um, and also just be mindful of the things that could derail it. Cause it's one thing to have good growth when times are good, but what we can often, you know, again, another quote from, from the same group is like, nobody knows who's got shorts on until the tide goes out. Right. And that's a very real phenomenon in most businesses, right. Totally. It's like, how much emphasis are you putting on growth and missing on some of these other things that could derail it? Um, the other thing I would say is another reason why we maybe avoid it is I think we often think it could be, we're sort of dreading the process of thinking right. about these things and going through the exercise. And in my experience, I think that's actually unfounded. I think most people who actually take the time to think about the losses or where they have risks in their business, and then they put planning in place to actually mitigate those losses, there's a great deal of relief that comes with it. But often we dread the processing. It's going to be very time consuming. I don't know if I'm going to like this. And so mm. that can also be another obstacle. Yeah. Those factors may make a ton of sense. Um, I can definitely relate to it, right? There is kind of like a, like a emotion, a more heart-like engagement that comes with like having fun and growing and pushing. Mm -hmm. And this is more of the like mental heavy lifting that needs to go into protecting downside risks. So I definitely get that. Um, with all of that said though, why is it still prudent to have these things um, to yeah. take action on, on, on a bunch of this stuff. Yeah. In my mind, um, I would say there's three main reasons why you want to look at it. Um, the very first one is that a lot of the risk mitigation strategies that you would put in place, they need to be put in place before something happens. Right. So if we think of like a health event, you're diagnosed with cancer, or maybe you're mm. even just diagnosed as having a greater likelihood of developing cancer in the future. At that point, it's probably too late. You're probably not insurable. Like um, the insurers won't take that retroactively do yeah. it. Yeah. You can't build a dam after it's already <laughs> flooded. It's like there's, yeah, I, I, I get that. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the planning needs to be put in place. In fact, when times are really good and you don't need any protection, that's the time when you want to be thinking about putting right. it in place. Um, the second reason I would say is just to avoid being a burden. So sometimes we think about ourselves in a very self-centered fashion of like, oh, well, I think I could handle that scenario. I could get through it. But broaden your thought process around that to really think Think about how of not planning for some of these things could have a greater impact on everybody else around you, your spouse, your business partner, other people. Um, I'll take kind of a classic example of somebody who doesn't do a will. Right. right. Most people don't do a will because they think they've got more time to do it. Mm. I'll do it later. Right. I'll just delay it. But the reality is, is that if you die in test state, what do you leave? I mean, most jurisdictions have rules as to how your state will be divided. So it's not like it won't get done, but you've probably left your family members with a huge burden of now having to administer an estate with no guidance from you. And I've seen this happen with business owners in particular. If we think of a scenario where let's say that you're running the business, Business. You had planned on selling your business maybe to a key employee, but nothing's been really put yep. in place, et cetera. Now you pass away quite suddenly. There's a lot of emotion for everybody involved. That key employee who's put 10 years of their sweat equity into the business says, actually, I was planning on buying it. Can I now do that? And now everybody is very confused as to what you would have wanted. And now everybody's right. kind of left with this emotional burden at the same time that they're grieving, right? Yeah. So it can be a big burden. Our our loyal listeners who listen every week will, will remember a couple months back we had Stephen Osborne on who had who was a you know his his dad the founder passed away very very suddenly mm -hmm. six weeks everything was in agreement they talked about it for a decade mm -hmm. you're going to take over you're going to be CEO here's how the here's how the equity will exchange hands nothing written down and it was you know not an unmitigated disaster because he got himself out of it but he, he'll he'll tell you is himself, you know, I could have avoided a lot, a lot, a lot of <laughs> headaches with just anything captured and they didn't have it. So, yeah. And part of that is, is that the people that are surviving you and now left to make these decisions, they feel a ton of responsibility to do right by you with not a lot of guidance. So they're also confused. Um, the third reason I would say to also put in place um, is that if you have an event that let's say it's health oriented, but you, you don't pass away just to give yourself the ability to focus on your health and your business is 
is significant. And so I actually went through this experience personally. My spouse had a health event. We had a nine month old child at the time. He was running a business and suddenly like overnight, everything changes, not just mentally, but also from a productivity standpoint, suddenly you got an hour or two every day where you're going to medical appointments, potentially you're on drugs or other things. You've got fatigue and now you're not that productive outside of that. And it's a lot. And he fortunately had really good disability insurance in place. But the most fascinating part of that whole experience for me personally going through it was that he actually didn't need the insurance. So financially, he would have been okay without it. We would have maybe had to make some changes, but he would have been fine. And that's one of the things I would say is that most people don't actually need insurance. But what I would offer is there's some compelling reasons why you may really want insurance to help you manage through a situation like ours. Yeah. Yeah. This, uh, that point that you said, like you don't really realize though, until you are in that kind of situation, how disruptive it is to your life and your productivity. Like I work quite a bit, obviously, and I'm Mm -hmm. very focused on all hours of my day. And, um, I did have, um, you know, thankfully, knock on wood, like the extent of my medical situations have been stuff that I've done to myself in, in, in adventure sports and stuff. But <laughs> it's adding up, though, dude. It, it, yeah, it's like been adding up. Um, they still count. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so the last one was was like I did an orthopedic surgery after a broken bone and stuff, and I just couldn't believe how much it disrupted not just my my life but my work and everything. You don't really yeah. think about these things until it happens, and you're like, man, this really throws a wrench in all kinds of plans. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, that that's uh, that is pretty eye opening. So, tell us, like, in your experience and in, in working with a lot of entrepreneurs, what are like the top few, top four, top five um, major kind of things that can go wrong that people might not have on their mind, but probably should have some awareness on? Where these are things that could ha- that could create major disruptions in your pursuit of whatever your long term goals are. Yeah, so we've alluded to two of them already. So I would start by saying death, um, but I would broaden that to not just say death of the entrepreneur, but death of their spouse, death of another shareholder, death of a key employee. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think about it again from from a business lens, if you are the owner running a contracting company, but maybe you heavily rely on one key employee to run your sites or to do right. your estimating, what would be the broader impact if they were to vanish um, overnight? And what would that do to your business? Um, also disability or critical illness. So again, and use the same key people, owner, spouse, business owner, um, key employee as well. And then if we look at three other scenarios um, that I can think of that can be massively disruptive to a business, um, the first one I would put in the lens of like mismanaging your capital structure. So um, when you start out in business, usually it's 100% risk all of the time. You have to take risks. That's why you building it. And so there's a lot of that. But as you start to accumulate assets, how you manage those assets in a more strategic capacity becomes more relevant because you actually now have something to lose. And so if we look at it from a capital structure standpoint, if you could picture like a pyramid where your bottom layer of your pyramid is your core capital, that's your foundation. That's what you need to run your personal life and your business and cash flow everything in your life. Your mid-tier capital is like your tax capital. That's the capital that you use maybe as part of a development project you're doing. And when that project wraps up, you're going to recycle it back into your overall capital. Um, and then the mid one or the top part of it is your risk capital. That's where you're really shooting for like high octane, but mm. it also could become worthless. Right. And what can often happen, again, we start out with this like emphasis on risk. And as we accumulate assets, we don't often take a step back and look at how our capital is actually structured to make sure that we haven't continued to be 100% risk. Mm, or like, a hun- like People are operating with only the top part of the yeah. pyramid. They don't yeah. actually like refill the bottom and build the foundation to build the middle. It's, it's really uh, imbalanced. Yeah. Exactly. And quite often what happens is as we accumulate things, we may have a little bit of a foundation to it, but maybe that tactical part of the pyramid again gets really big. We start to take on a bunch of projects, things are all going well and it's fine. But what can happen is that that can get out of balance really quickly. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, I had a client that in 2008 was um, did road construction. So they had a whole bunch of equipment um, and they were paving these big, big roads. Um, what happened? 08, of course, was around the corner. A lot of these contracts got canceled, but they still had massive lease payments for all the equipment and they had no revenue coming in for a period of time. And so that tactical part of their pyramid was too big and it very quickly ate up what was a pretty weak foundation. Yeah. That is so interesting. I, I love the way that you orchestrated that example. I just want to make sure our kind of listeners 
like get what you're saying because what you're saying is so powerful. I've, I've never in my life thought about it that way. But once you build something, you now have something to lose. Mm -hmm. And actually like realizing that and crystallizing that in your head is pretty important. And you're basically just saying that, you know, there's, there's quite a number of years where all of the capital and the equity that you have is going into riskier stuff, which mm -hmm. you're driving the business forward with. But you actually want to tone that down over time. You're saying like once you've built something of success, you're saying almost like move money outside of the risky stuff, outside of your business into things that are maybe a bit more safe, a bit more stable, and maybe like unrelated to your business, like to that 08 contracting paving company example. Yeah. Like maybe you're not like all in on your construction and contracting industry all the time, you're diversifying to other stuff as well. Yeah. And what, what might surprise you is that part of the reason to do that is actually so you can take really calculated risk when the opportunity is better. Totally. So if you manage your floor, your core capital really, really you're well, good anyways. You're, you know good you're good anyways. Yeah. And then your industry has a bit of a rollover or a setback and you are the one who's sitting pretty essentially. You can go make some plays. Oh, and you can see the opportunities and you've got dry powder to actually take advantage of that. And that's really where you can really separate yourself from your peers from a business standpoint. Yeah. And because you're hitting the gas pedal when everyone else is hitting the brakes. Totally. Yeah. Uh, we we're just making references to Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett earlier, but um, I remember seeing some clip as well. I can't remember which one, one of the two of them was talking of the, just the amount of 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 cap, like the amount of money basically that gets made coming out of oh, yeah. dips of different kinds. And mm. they would have seen it just, mm -hmm. how old are these yeah. guys now? But like <laughs> Charlie Munger just turned 99. No way. Yeah, yeah he's really old. Yeah, they're like, they're like wheeling him out there for these conferences now. <laughs> I, 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 don't even, I don't know phenomenal. how good his vision is. I just think he's like there. <laughs> just the brain wisdom. is there. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, just imagine in, in their lifetime, like the number of cycles that, that they would have seen. So they're basically saying it's the people that are well positioned with dry powder to be able to capitalize on, on those opportunities. Like that's where you really make money over the course of decades. Um, but uh, yeah, th that is a very different perspective than the gunslinging cowboy of an entrepreneur who's just like all risk all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Fascinating. Cool. So yeah, that that certainly is is an important concept. Is there anything else just on like major disruptions yeah, that people so should be aware of? I'll throw out two other ones. Um, one is just industry diversification or I'll call it a home bias. So we see this in almost every industry. If I meet with a mining executive and I look at their portfolio, chances are it's like chock-a-block <laughs> chock full of every mining. It's like my <laughs> fantasy football team is full of Seattle Seahawks and I'm <laughs> Just losing games left, right, and center. Yeah, yeah it's exactly. A homer bias. Exactly, yeah. the homer bias. Um, so we see that in all industries, but real estate and construction is particularly um, guilty, I would say, totally. of this, in part because we've been through an environment of almost a 40-year cycle of declining interest rates, and real estate has done very well over that portion of time. Um, and so what winds up happening is you have all of your business is exposed to real estate and construction. And what do they do with the money that they pull out of their operating company and they invest They'll elsewhere? They'll do more of it. Yeah, they go buy rental properties, right? And so now suddenly, if we go back to the pyramid, their entire net worth is exposed to the same factors that disrupt their business. So they really haven't set themselves up to have dry powder when things do change. Yeah, that that is a huge point. I want to make sure we don't yeah. gloss over that. So if you're listening to this, you're in the contracting space, you own a business, therefore, yeah. by definition, most of your asset base is the value of your business that's, that is in, in that specific industry. Plus, then if you've got some investments in actual real estate, yeah. that, that's driving it. And maybe you've got some stocks, maybe there are also REITs invested in real estate <laughs> trusts. Like you are actually, well, it might look diversified. Well, I've got a business, I've got you know eight different rental properties, and maybe I've got some stocks that are, like you might think you're diversified, but really like it all revolves around an industry that to that example, like we're now seeing a climate of rapidly rising cost of capital that's putting a lot of pressure in the valuations and of, of all of these things. Um, it's pretty easy to see how you could end up in a pretty bad situation. Absolutely. And it's just that they're all exposed to the same variables mm. that you don't have control over. Yeah, 100%. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. The last one is probably the most awkward to talk about, but let's throw it out there anyways. And I would just say divorce or yeah. any marital issues can really be disruptive to any business. It doesn't matter what the industry is. Um, I've seen it with clients where they've had to liquidate a key building that was part of it or have to sell a warehouse 
house part of their business um, in order to fund a just diverse like a disbursement with their ex-spouse um, and if you think about it, if you live like if we use Vancouver as an example housing is pretty expensive here you live together and you own one house and now you split up and you need two of them mm. and so you need a great deal of liquidity to go through a divorce most yeah. often or you could find yourself sitting at the boardroom table with your ex-spouse or if you have a business partner potentially worse your partner's ex-spouse um, and it can be really massively disruptive to a business Let, let's not be vague about this one actually i want to click in on that like if yeah. you if um joe the contractor and his business is five million dollars a year and let's say he's a roofer or jill the contractor and she her business is five million dollars a year like in an, like what sort of risks are there to the besides the heartbreak and the restructuring of the family and all that and that's not nothing no it's but, big but but in addition to that in what way, in what ways is that business entity that he or she has built at risk as a result of the divorce well if you built it over the course of your relationship and you don't have any prenuptial agreements or cohabitation agreements or marital agreements in place in advance then that growth is divisible Right. Yeah. So, so they they are entitled to, uh, hey, when I started, it was a zero million dollar business a year, and now it's five. They're entitled to half of the value of that business based on, uh, yeah. an, an appraisal, and then and then the that you know recent that new divorcee is forced to I don't know borrow the money, sell the business, come up with it some other way, and. Yeah, yeah okay. and it can be complicated in terms of like how it gets divided. Like it could be done through like spousal income and things that the business essentially that the business owner is obligated to pay out to their spouse over a period of time. Or it could be an actual liquidation where you put a mortgage or something on a property to buy your spouse out. And um, there can be a lot of different ways, but it is significant and it can really cripple the cash flow um, totally. and, um, and the decision making. I've seen divorces that, in fact, I have one right now um, where the divorce has been in progress for seven years. It's massively disruptive to that business. They've now sold the real estate and done some stuff, but it, it, take, it takes a long time. Okay. Yeah. And and what can also really complicate this is if there's multiple business partners involved, maybe you have a business partner, maybe mm -hmm. you have two business partners and your marriage, from what I understand, could be just fine. But then there's a divorce on, with another partner. And now you're literally like at a director's table, level yeah. table with, with a spouse who really like you don't have, it hasn't really previously had no connection to your business and is technically now could be a shareholder. Yeah, they have a say. Yeah. yeah. Is there a way, to, is the only way to protect yourself through, with that through prenups and like contracts in the marriage or is there something you can do to the partnership agreement or some other like legal mechanism to to create some defense around a situation Yeah, so like you can that? put some of that into like shareholder agreements and that as to like who can become a shareholder or a director. So you can provide some, some protection there. Um, prenups are another way um, of dealing with it as well. Okay. Yeah, cool. So on that note, uh, tell us a bit about like we, we've talked about these pretty catastrophic disruptions. Uh, what should business owners be doing when times are good to be able to mitigate some of this stuff? So give us like a, the key things that come to mind. What should an entrepreneur be doing to take action on these things if they're listening to this and saying, holy crap, this is pretty serious? Yeah. So. I mean, the best part about when times are good is that usually you've got expanding revenue, you've got better profitability, yeah. and essentially there's fat in the business that you can usually use um, to start to shore up some of these other pieces. And quite often in that environment, we actually don't even notice the little bits that we might pull aside, right? Because things are yeah. going pretty well. And so it's a great way at that time to kind of set up some stability and take advantage of the planning that you could be doing when you're not going to notice it in a great deal. So a couple of examples I would give is, you know, putting proper insurance insurance planning in place. You know, you look at premium payments and people sometimes have sticker shock over what proper insurance coverage would look like for them. Do it when times are good and you're not going to really notice the cost of that, yeah. right? It's better to do it then than it is when you've got some sort of triggering event or your revenue's declining. Yeah. So better to do it when things are going well. The other one would be, again, pulling money out of the operating company into a holding company and diversifying your industry and your, your exposure. Right. So again, creating a bit of that dry power so that when things, if things do turn around, you've got something mm -hmm. um, to, to protect you. I want to just mention something yeah. on that sort of opco to hold co thing. Um, because, and, and I've, we've brought this up on other episodes, but one one fallacy that I think entrepreneurs get into in this space in particular, mm -hmm. blue collar businesses, they're doing construction, they're doing general contracting, painting, whatever, is unfortunately these businesses are not actually inherently as valuable as the entrepreneur thinks they are. So mm -hmm. there's a, I'm going to leave it in because this business is growing and it's going to be worth a ton one day. 
we had this guy, John Warrillow on who built this, who wrote this book, Built to Sell. And I asked him this, I was like, is it, an, is it smart to do this? He's like, if you're, if you have this type of business where it's absolutely appealing to a private equity business, and, you know, the, and there's certain criteria that they look for, there is a case to be made for perhaps le- re- continually reinvesting, reinvesting all the time. But in most instances, a smart person just basically uses that as a money-making machine and they're super disciplined over the course of a 10-year span to pull the money out because best case scenario for a home builder who's got a great brand, a great team, great systems, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, best case scenario, they're getting a three times multiple. And that's like the absolute upper threshold. And in many cases, it's much less. So his whole attitude was just like, watch the tendency to be like, I'm sitting on a rocket ship here. This thing's (laughs) going to be worth a pile. I'm better investing it here than anywhere else. He's like, that's actually not the case. Strip it out, put it somewhere else. That will do well. If you can get some money for your business at the end of the journey, great, but don't hold your breath. Yeah, exactly. Like keep enough money in your operating business to provide yourself with like that security of what you need in the short term. I actually had a friend of mine who um, completed the leverage buyout of a construction um, business related business just this last week. And I was talking to him with like the debt payments that he has. I said, well, how much of that is like your net profit on a monthly basis? He said it's about 40 percent. And I said, "Okay, so if we have a decline in the industry in the next year or two years, what do you need to tuck aside to make sure that you can still meet your loan? payments. In five years, when that loan is paid off and he owns 100% of that company, it's going to be a cash cow that he's going to be pulling money out and tossing. But I'm like, just don't derail it at this critical junction. You've worked too hard now to get here. You got to make those loan payments. Um, so, so shoring up cash, um, I would also throw principal residents into that mix as well. To me, having a clear title house is worth a lot mm-hmm. for a couple of different reasons. It gives you a ton of flexibility that you don't have to draw as much out of the company. You can actually be lean and mean if you need to, right? You don't have your ongoing personal obligations. Um, the other thing is, is that when times are really good, pulling a little bit extra out to make a lump sum on your mortgage and to get yourself into a debt-free capacity on your principal residence can actually give give you, again, a lot of flexibility. And keep in mind, in the future, if you ever need access to other liquidity or another asset, if you have a clear title house, you can leverage totally. that when you need to. But if it's already leveraged to the to the, you know, to the nth degree, well, then what's going to happen is when you really need a loan because something happens or because you want to take advantage of something, it's always going to like count against you essentially. That's so interesting. Yeah. I, uh, it, it's good that we're, we're bringing this up because there, there's like, you often hear the counter argument, yeah, totally. which yeah. is like, yeah. if you've got a 4% loan, it might be higher than that now, yeah. but in general, it's just called a 4% mortgage. Uh, you know, the other, other game is just like, can I just never pay this off? Can you just <laughs> yeah. give me as much money as possible? Like, so how I'm sure you hear both, yeah. like what, what's your point of view on the one versus the other? Yeah, so finance one-on-one would say, okay, my potential return in a portfolio is eight and my mortgage is at three. Why would I ever pay off yeah. the mortgage? Um, my view is, is that the beauty of doing it when times are good is that it's not going to derail your diversification. It's not going to derail your business. So take it out when times are really good and you're not going to notice it. And when you fast forward five or 10 years and you look at yourself and you go, wow, I'm 30 something and I'm completely debt free on my residence. You're, you have so much financial flexibility, Mm -hmm. so much more than other people. And the truth is, is that potential returns on markets are just that they're potential. And we can go through anemic periods like we're going through right now. And you can also, so, I mean, in Canada, where we have five-year mortgage rates, you come up for renewal and it's no longer three. Now it's seven. I was just going to say that. And so Right yeah. now, in particular, yeah. this is very good advice. There's a whole bunch of people coming. I mean, this is actually a very serious and acute issue here in mm-hmm. Canada right now. It's not funny at all. Like yeah. in the next two to three years, there's a whole bunch of people who are on fixed rate mortgages coming up for renewal who are going to go from two to seven. Yeah. And that you know, we'll see how that all shakes out. Rates could come down, maybe they survive, but there's a scenario where people are handing in their keys to the bank and it's like, you know, try again next time. Um, So in an instance like that, there actually is absolutely a case to be made to get down that principle so that when you come up for a meal, that, that 7% is only acting on a much smaller amount that you, that you owe. So there's, there's in this particular environment, I think that's especially sound advice. Well, like, like in 2022, so last year, I, kind of jokingly said that I was the debt fairy in the office because interest rates were starting to climb. And I probably spent three months just calling clients that I knew had debt. And I was like, 
interest rates are coming up. Why don't we make a lump sum? Like, why don't we take a little bit out of your portfolio? It's not going to derail all the rest of the planning that we're doing, but we're going to make one lump sum payment that you're eligible to do this year. And we're just going to keep knocking that mortgage balance down. And if you look at what that does longer term for, for creating flexibility, it's huge. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah, very, very interesting. It kind of reminds me, uh, I just got back <laughs> last night from like five days in the woods and it reminds me of like a power bank, like like your house, like you've got just, if you could keep yeah. it charged, you could always draw from it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it is interesting. I mean, I to be honest, uh, up to this conversation, I've, I've always kept hearing that finance 101 advice, which is like, <laughs> yeah. why would you pay off a 4% loan? But um, th- that is a very interesting like alternate perspective that does make a lot of sense because you're saying like you can't, it's always there if, if, if you've got it free and clear like you could always draw yeah. from it um but uh yeah I, I was always the guy that gets the the letters in the mail from the mortgage company of the lump sum payments just tear it up and throw in the garbage because <laughs> i'm just like this like a 1.8 percent loan like why would i ever well and i think the psychological factor is big yeah. like i hear what danielle is saying where yeah. it's like if you're a business owner and you you know going back to what you're saying earlier you, you, something happens in the market you want to make a play you want to go out and borrow some money it's and buy there. a competitor like psychologically being debt free or nearly debt free or having a really, really, really small mortgage payment, which sadly in this part of the world, almost no one has. If you just mentally, you're kind of like, you're so much more nimble and can kind of play fast and loose in a way that I think you need to, if you're going to do that. If you're like, Hey, eight grand a month is coming out, come hell or high water and we got to make it happen or we're tits up. Like, that's not the best headspace to go and do some big entrepreneurial stuff with. So yeah, it's just a, those are good points. Yeah. Interesting. Um, tell me this. Uh, we were, so we're, we're talking here like business risk and we're talking, we, there's been an element of health risk here yeah. as well. Like we, we, we've been kind of bouncing back and forth between these two. When it comes to uh, some, especially some of these health risks, like what are, and we don't need to go like deep into these, but give me the high level of like what sort of insurances are available that a business owner should either have or have some awareness of. Yeah, so there's three main events that you can insure. The first would be death. The second would be critical illness and the third would be disability. Um, let's start with death because it's the most black and white. You're either alive or you're dead. Um, you can put life insurance in place. There's two basic forms of life insurance. One is term insurance and the other is permanent. Mm-hmm. Um, and as they sound, so term insurance is often insurance you play, put in place because you need that coverage for a specific period of time, but maybe not beyond that. So a couple classic examples of that. Most basic, you have young children. By the time they're in university, your need for insurance is significantly less. So often people put a term 20 plan in place. Like okay? I, I might want to be insured for this for the next 20 years. After that, they're fine on their own. They're I see fine. what you're saying. Yeah, I, yeah, hope, yeah. I hope they get a good job and that they can self. self. Now kids yeah. stay at home for longer. I was so. going to say, <laughs> I I was, university, I don't know. They, <laughs> do it till they're like 35 now. Yeah, uh, exactly. They till they keep coming back to beg mom and dad. Um, and the... The other reason where you may use term insurance is let's say that you're a business owner and you're maybe in your last 10 years of working, then the plan is to actually sell your business um, and that, but you still have this final 10 years of really big um, capital that you're planning on generating essentially. And in my experience, early on when people are building a business, they still have mortgages, they still have debt, they still have a lot of that stuff. Entrepreneurs actually tend to like really, really pad their investment portfolios in their last decade of working. Hmm. And if something happened to them in that last decade of working, it really is removing a lot of that like massive inflow of capital that they were expecting to achieve. So they may put like a term 10 policy Mm. in place that if they were to die in that last 10 years of working, they've got a big gap. Um, So that was delayed gratification. The entrepreneurial route is one where, it's really, really hard for a long time until it's yeah. a little less hard and then it's a little easier and then actually yeah. you're you're really doing well. And so it's it's not it is not at all just <laughs> yeah. like a straight thing. No. It's more of like a slingshot and you want yeah, that's yeah. that's a good point. Well, what what you're saying is basically like with the term insurance, you're you're insuring to a point and then after that you're like, Well, essentially self insure after that. Self insure after I've that. Had a bunch of liquidity up that point. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I get you. Um permanent insurance though is as it sounds, which that policy will stay in place until either you pass away or you cancel the policy. Mm -hmm. And so permanent insurance can be used for a couple of different reasons. One is it could be that you have a need for insurance longer term 
A um, couple of examples of that is you could be insuring estate tax or capital gains tax on your death. And so you're actually trying to create right. some liquidity so that maybe your family can retain a building or that that you want to right. keep, and but the taxes will be owed. Um, another example is if you have children from a previous relationship, it can be a very flexible tool of making sure that your children from a previous relationship inherit when you pass away, but that the rest of your assets can maybe roll to your surviving spouse and mm -hmm. potentially other kids. Um, so again, it can be flexible for that as well. And the other reason on the permanent insurance, it can be used as an investment as well. Um, that's probably getting outside the scope of today, but essentially you can put money into an insurance policy and it grows tax-free in there. And there are ways to use it as part of a retirement planning as well. Mm. Um, and then lastly, if there's any concern that you might not be insurable in the future. Right. So, you know, we put this plan in place when we're 30 and then guess what? We have a health triggering event at 50 and our circumstances change. And now we actually have again another need for insurance, but we no longer qualify. So sometimes people use a permanent plan, even for something temporary, just so that they could use it in a flexible capacity if they ever don't become insurable. I have a feeling that probably happens more often than people it think, does. unfortunately. Yeah. Well, it, it, and think about it from an insurance underwriting. I mean, they're, they're conservative. And so you might be perfectly healthy, but they might see something in there that from a statistic standpoint means that Benji has a greater likelihood of yeah. developing this is so you may not be insurable. Interesting. Um, so it's like, get it while you can. But you know what else I would say? I've had multiple people go through the insurance underwriting process and actually uncover pretty significant health things. If mm. you ever want to know that you are healthy, go through go an insurance, insurance. and oh, they will find it. Interesting. Um, so it's very like the best health checkup you could get. That's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. yeah very um, interesting. So those that's basically life insurance. I'll skip to the other two pretty quick. Sure. Um, so critical illness, again, is similar to life insurance. It's very black and white. Okay. It's a contract that outlines exactly specific diseases or illnesses that if you meet the qualifications in that contract, you will receive a lump sum payout upon diagnosis. So let's use the example of a stroke. You have a stroke go into the critical illness contract, the stroke that you had meets the definition, they will write you a check, it's a lump sum, it goes into your business, and you could use it to hire somebody new to bridge that gap while you're recovering. You could use it for a multitude of different uses. So it's a lump mm -hmm. sum payout. Does it, does it depend on the outcome or the severity of your disability? I'm getting really morbid here, but like, does it, does it kind of like depend on how affected you in your life is? Or is it when you say it's black and white, it's like, no, no, you had a stroke. Yeah. But you know what? You've done really good recovery. You've had great nutrition, good specialists. Two years later, you're actually doing pretty well. Yeah. Like, is it is it based on outcomes or is it based on diagnosis? That is the most fabulous question that you could ask because with critical illness, it is black and white. It is like you had this type of stroke and maybe that stroke impaired you physically, but you don't need your physical right. self yeah, to do the work. No problem. Critical illness will pay out automatically. Okay. It's black mm. and white. It needs to be life-threatening. So to not get into too specific, but if it's like stage one prostate cancer where you're like chances of survival are incredibly high, it won't pay a benefit. And that's outlined in the contract. Right. Okay. Um, disability insurance though, to your question is way more subjective. Mm. So disability is the ensuring your ability to earn an income and therefore, whatever triggering event, let's stick with stroke because we're already using it, that stroke must have made an impact in preventing you from generating the same income that you were generating before. So now it actually has to apply to your ability to generate an income. And so disability is much more subjective compared to the other two. Um, and for that reason, what it does is that if you qualify, it pays you a monthly benefit during the period that you are disabled. Um, usually they will run all the way to like age 65 or 70, as long as you continue to experience mm -hmm. health um, impact from, from the event. Um, the key thing I want, um, this is important, I think for people that are listening to this is that if you are putting a disability policy in place, the number one question I would ask the agent that you're working with is to say in the event that I experience a health triggering event and I need to make a claim for disability, who will assist me in making that claim? Who will advocate for me? Who will help me navigate the system? I think that's so important. You really want to make sure that the person that you're working with, you have a relationship with, and they would actually help you administer it if that were to happen, because it is so much more nuanced. Yeah. Yeah. yeah very interesting. Uh, if I am a fairly successful entrepreneur mm -hmm. listening to this and saying, you know, this like disability insurance, uh, critical illness, like I, I, you know, sure I technically get what you're saying, but 
you know, we do fairly well in this company. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, as money could help me hire somebody and all that, but like we, we also have the profit to, to do that. So why would I insure for this? What would be your response to that, especially like more, like less logically, but like emotionally, how does emotionally. that actually end up with people like for somebody who is, un like, you know, unfortunately in that situation? Yeah. So, I mean, I've, I've lived this in, in real time, like with my spouse and I've gone through it. And I think what people often think about when they think about, you know, well, if this happened, we tend to overestimate the concessions that we would be willing to make in that environment. So like, let's, let's take, for example, you could present somebody's net worth and they say, well, no problem. If that happens, I'll sell the cabin and I'll pay off this stuff and I could make it work or we'll downsize our house, you know, get rid of the mortgage. We don't need insurance. And then you actually say, okay, you've been diagnosed with cancer. You're now dealing with all the medical appointments, your own thoughts around mortality as well. Is it really the time where you want to downsize your house and move your family or sell the cabin that's creating some oasis away from it all? Right. I really think it's important to think about it in a more idealistic way of not what you could do to bridge that gap, but what we would want in an ideal way. Um, in that, in that in unfortunate that, situation. In that unfortunate yeah, yeah. situation. Because I have never seen somebody go through like a major catastrophic event that had insurance that said, oh, I think I had too much insurance in place. Right. There just isn't enough insurance that you can put in place if you lose your spouse. There's no gap for that, right? Mm -hmm. And so, but having financial flexibility so you don't have to worry about the finances and you can focus on health or your business, it gives phenomenal peace right. of mind. Yeah, so there's something very sort of human nature about the way, like I like, and I like how you framed this, like we overestimate the concessions we'll be able to mm -hmm. make. Yeah. It's like, no, 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 if that happened, yeah. we'd just we'll do, do X, this. Y, and Z. It's yeah. like, would you? Like, it's so easy on paper. It's so easy in the abstract when you're kind of thinking about this super hypothetical situation, which really deep down you don't think is going to happen. It's like, there's no way you're going to sell the cottage when yeah. you might only have 10 years left. Like, yeah. That's insane. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it sounds a bit morbid, but like, yeah, putting yourself in this situation of, of, okay, this situation is happening to me hypothetically, this really terrible, unfortunate situation. Um, you know, what would that feel like and what would that be like is, is different than saying from this current, very healthy, good perspective, rationally, yet we could make this work. Those are two very different ways to look at, at a situation. Yeah. I, well, and I think too, the other thing that I've seen happen in my own personal life with, with friends and, and in business too, is when some of these events happen, yeah, you're actually less conservative. People are like, live now, baby. Like I, I want to go travel. I'm actually, I want to work a lot less. <laughs> and so this whole idea that you're going to play it safe and sell this and sell this and get rid of the that, cottage. They're, yeah. they're like, yeah. I got, I just had a huge life event. I want to spend all my time with my kids and my wife. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's actually, a, anyway, it's just people in reality, I think go the opposite way than they think they will when they're kind of yeah. planning and scheming all this stuff yeah, out. And it, can, it quite often, it completely shifts your priorities into what you want to do. Right. And, and the thing is, is that as you're going through that experience, so I kind of joke around in my spouse's case, that his mountain biking improved almost immediately afterwards, <laughs> right? Because he, he wanted to, to get out and kind of do stuff, yeah, right? Yeah. Sure, Cause you're kind of faced and, with something, yeah. you know, and you're like, I don't know, what if I can't do this again? Yeah, yeah. You know, I need to get out there. I'm going to take on that, that high skinny and hope that it all goes well kind of thing. Um, but you know, if you look at like what happens it, when somebody does those decisions is quite often, then they pull away a little bit from the business. Mm -hmm. And so what happens from a revenue standpoint in the business is that quite often your immediate revenue continues on, mm -hmm. but new business mm -hmm. or new projects, you don't have the same appetite to want to take totally. them on. You're not looking for new work in the same way. You might not be as passionate about it. You're not, you're not so sure how you'll manage it. And so you wind up with this decline in revenue that starts yeah. to happen, or you have key employees who have worked with you for a long time and they all step up, mm. but now you need to pay them more mm. too. And so at the same time, and some, sometimes medical costs can be pretty significant too, and not covered. Right. We haven't and even you, talked about that one, yeah. yeah like you might want to you know, travel somewhere because they've got this neat immunotherapy right. or whatever, yeah, 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 and you're yeah, going to yeah. go do whatever you need to do. Yeah. Again, having that like disability or critical illness so that pays yeah. out gives you the flexibility to do all of that. And you yeah. don't know how you feel until that hits. That is a very clear point, actually. Like just this current level of, of advancement in technology, like in medicine is mm -hmm. staggering and different places around the world are pioneering different things. Like, would you not want to have the very, very best medical care for whatever that circumstance, yeah. you know? 
hopefully not, but if, if that is the case, um, if, if that happened to you, you'd want to have the very, very best access and would you not want that paid for? So it's an interesting way to look at it. Um, I've got one other question for you because I want to move on from this topic. Mm-hmm. Um, you've previously mentioned something to me around some sort of, I can't even remember the name, but basically like if you don't use it from a cost perspective, a part of it can actually come yeah. back. Is that a thing? And is that a thing both, do you know, in Canada and the US, like, is that a part of these like insurance products where if it, if it's a 20 year term and it's unused at that point where you can actually get some of the premiums back? Yeah, so with both um, critical illness and um, and disability insurance in Canada, they do offer return of premium riders. And what those are is essentially you pay more for the insurance, but if you don't ever make a claim on that insurance, you get a portion of your premiums back. So the way to look at that from like an outcome perspective is you pay more. So if you do develop a disability or critical illness, that insurance costs you more, but at the same time, you got this big benefit at a time when you needed it. So it, it worked the way it was supposed to. But if you don't ever develop a disability or critical illness, you can actually pull back some of those premiums that you paid. And you could view it as- At the end of the term. At the end of the term. So um, some disability policies pay them out every eight years. Critical illness is often every 15 years. And you could view it as like a form of forced savings. The way I would describe it is like you're ensuring the possibility that you may experience a health event, but you're also ensuring the probability that you might not. You know, so you're ensuring the probability they might not, in which case you want to get something back in the U.S. um, I'm not sure about how they work return of premium payments. Unfortunately, I don't know how it works. But in Canada, there's there's also some tax benefits of doing it as well. Very interesting. So it could 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 be uh, something to look further into Mm -hmm. both with an insurance professional. Absolutely. And also with a with a with a tax with yeah. a tax advisor. So if an entrepreneur is listening to this and saying to themselves, huh, I've either not thought about this before, or I've thought about it and said, you know, decline a bunch of this stuff and, and not just the insurances, but also the idea of like moving capital to more conservative places and all that kind of stuff. But based on what you're saying, um, this actually might be pretty smart to even just consider a bit further. What are some just like very clear and simple action steps that you'd advise an entrepreneur to literally just take action on the next few weeks, next few months? Yeah, I think the first one is to sit down and really identify the gaps. So we've talked about a lot of different things. If we look at like the five things we talked about that could go wrong in the business, I think to sit down and really identify those gaps. The interesting thing is though, is I think a lot of entrepreneurs actually know where they have risk. They just haven't put it at the top of the to-do list. Mm -hmm. Again, it's this delayed decision, right? They know that they should do it. I should put a will in place, but it just never really gets there. And so probably one of the biggest like action items I would say is just do it. It won't be as painful as you think it will be. If you've been dreading the process, it doesn't have to be like that. Yeah. Um, but identify the gaps and start to work through through the to-do list. The other thing is that make sure that that planning that you do is relevant. So somebody might be listening today and they say, no, actually, I'm okay. I put disability in place 10 years ago. I, I've got I've got coverage. Is that coverage still relevant? Do you ever revisit it? If you've been fortunate to have a business that is growing significantly, maybe 10 years ago you were pulling $100,000 out of your business. And now today you're pulling 300 and you're married and you got mm. kids and a mortgage and everything Financial else. So you need to like audit. You need to like audit, need to audit the it. stuff that you have yeah. semi-frequently. Yeah. Like every year we'll do like a tech audit where we're like, we're spending... 300 totally. bucks a month on this software. Nobody's logged in and say, like, do we still need this? Like, <laughs> no. Totally. Yeah, yeah. And, and this, some of this, some of this stuff can be pretty serious, right? Where yeah. like, it's not just, okay, I'm drawing 200K a year more because I have like family. You could, your payroll could have gone up by $6 million a year. Totally. You could have, you know, some pretty serious like commercial mortgages on, on commercial spaces, on equipment, like, these are not just figures of like, oh, it's 200,000 more and like personal income. This could be like Major. debt obligations that are to the millions or payroll obligations that are, that are massive, right? Yeah. And I think we saw a little bit of that in 2020, right? When COVID hit. I mean, mm. if you looked when when that happened in March of 2020, by April, the number of people that were attempting to defer their mortgage payments was massive. Mm. People that were running their finances basically at the wall, right? Mm, Where they didn't have any contingency. And so as soon as everything shut down, they suddenly had a real problem. You don't want to be in that situation. So do an an audit, essentially, like you say, a technology audit, but do it of like your capital structure as well. How much tactical projects do I have on the go? If one of these projects gets delayed or when it comes to fruition, interest rates are double from where they are, how is that going to affect the business? And so really spend some time to really think through it. And the key part is do not 
like overestimate what you think you would do in that situation. I think we just tend to think that we would manage it differently Mm -hmm. from a very like healthy person perspective, Mm -hmm. as opposed to what you might actually be feeling. Yeah, a bit more, get morbid, but you have to put yourself in the shoes of a very distressed you. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And um, one last question on, on this on this action steps is: uh, Do you have any? Is there anything additional from a recommendations perspective? If you have a business partner or two business partners, like should is this like everybody doing this? Like, is there anything else that's added to this mix of action items if you have a business partner or multiple? Yeah. So I think when you have a business partner, you want to go through the same process, but together. Um, but I would say that it's maybe more important when you have a business partner because now if you do experience one of these catastrophic events, you don't have full control. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. So you can't even make your own concessions. Let's say that you're very frugal and you might be able to really tighten up your belt in that type of scenario and that wouldn't phase you. But maybe your business partner is not like that. Um, So quite often, if we if we think through a scenario of like a business partner arrangement, quite often business partners tend to have complementary skills. Right. So one person might be running operations. The other person might be looking after suppliers or actually on site. Um, And so they or maybe they're the ones doing the estimating and finding the work, um, you really need to think through how the business would be impacted depending on who on who was impacted by a health or other event. Um, to give an example of this, um, I knew of a scenario where somebody was running operations, the other business partner was the one who was controlling product and supplier. And what happened is that person passed away. And as soon as they passed away, what happened is that a lot of those relationships with supplier and what had been their core competitive advantage of their business was a really low cost of goods sold. Mm -hmm. He was able to negotiate phenomenal purchasing prices Mm -hmm. and they had big warehouses where they could buy in bulk and store it. And long relationships with the suppliers and everything. Not easily replaced stuff. No. And and also when somebody passed away and it's sudden, you know, the, the surviving business partner is also grieving and going through all of that as well. And now they've got staff that's also grieving and going through all of that as well. And so what wound up happening is that they didn't replace that individual very quickly. And so what winds up happening is your cost of goods sold gradually creeps up, your profit margin shrinks, but also because there was no insurance in place, you now have another family that owns half the business. And they also need liquidity from that business. They need income and your profit margin is shrinking. Your business valuation is shrinking. It's like six different problems at once. It's like six different problems at once. And everybody is in a heightened emotional state that it's not a good environment to make good decisions. In contrast, if simple life insurance had been put in place, what would have happened is that the surviving business owner would have had liquidity. They would have bought the business partner's family out of the business perfect. That gives that family full liquidity and access to income. It also gives the surviving business partner hundred percent control over all of the profit and everything else without impairing them financially, which gives them the flexibility to hire somebody faster, to fill in that skills gap or whatever the case might be. And they're also, you know, they have full control. Yeah. Um, yeah. Those are some pretty major factors that, again, coming back to how we started this conversation, like when times are really good, you're pumped about your business, you're pumped about your growing family, the adventures you go on, your travel, like this is like nowhere on your mind, basically. (laughs) Unfortunately not. Until it happens to you or somebody you know. But it'll never happen to me, though. No. (laughs) Pretty sobering. What are are your thoughts on... um, like, what are your thoughts on finding, seeking out, mm. finding good professionals to work with? This is a question, and we ask this question often on the show because there's so much in the entrepreneurial realm that you do have to delegate out. Like, you have yeah. to surround yourself with the right people. And today we're kind of talking about financial planning, risk mitigation, insurance, but. Yeah. We'd, I'd ask the same question as someone like, how do you find a good media buyer for your social, <laughs> like for your ads campaigns? Like this is a fundamental entrepreneurial skill set. So it's worth asking when it comes to this type of professional, what do you think is uh, really important for an entrepreneur who's trying to find the right fit, the right person for them? Yeah. So to me, the three things I would look for in hiring somebody is number one is trust. Um, most important part of any advisor crime client relationship is somebody that you can trust. The second one would be competence. So that they actually have the skills and the knowledge in the space to, to deliver what you need. The third one would be fit. We all have our own style of people that we like working with. And ultimately relationships are just easier if you like the person you're dealing with. Yeah. Um, in terms of like how to find that, right? If you go out to it, I usually like starting with an existing advisor relationship that I have that is going well. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it tends to be in this in this area, like it tends to be a pretty tight knit community. Um, so if I think about it myself personally, like I have a group of like vetted experts that I work with and I tend to work with them on a whole bunch of different You're files. You're talking like other professional services, like your lawyer, lawyer your tax your advisor, like this kind of thing. Your yeah, yeah, banker, yeah. your insurance representative, all your bookkeeper, you know, if you can f- ask one of them where you already have that trust, that competence and that fit, you can say, listen, you know me, you've worked with me. I need help in insurance planning. Who would you recommend? Is there somebody from your community that you've worked with, you enjoyed working with, you think well, I would get along with well? And part of the reason why it's important that your advisors, other advisors work together is that collaboration is really where you can improve upon the efficiency for yourself as well. Because it is daunting to put all this stuff into place, right? right? Versus if, if they're all oh, communicating, yes. Yeah, if yeah. they're all communicating and you can outsource it and sort of, you know, Benji can walk in there and say, this is what I want to have happen to my business if this happens now somebody make it happen you know right. and, and then you've they got the can insurance that f- the 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 investment advisor the lawyers making like the moves on that the tax strategist is making the moves they're all kind of like working together it's huge yeah and yeah. i i find that part so incredible and it kind of happens a lot behind the scenes but for example like i have a client whose business has been growing massively over the last five years and so we've had to revisit the planning every year and in fact we probably almost have to tweak it a little bit each quarter but we all operate behind the scenes they're busy right but i'll send off a note to the account to say have you thought about this have you thought about that they'll say yeah actually we have do you want to loop in so and so and so that we can all kind of strategize and come back to the entrepreneur and say we've looked at this is what we think you should do like without yeah. the person without yeah, the person yeah, you guys yeah. just do that on you your own you just do it on your own how would, i mean is there a way that you can like how do you quantify that if you're if a if a business owner is meeting with advisors do you you know do you straight up ask them hey like would you ever collaborate with my other advisors without me in attendance at the meeting i'd love to outsource some of the critical thinking to you guys? Like, is that something they should be able to speak to in your for your initial meetings with this person? Yeah. And some people will do it and some people won't. Right. So, I mean, technically my role is an investment advisor, but it's much broader than that. Yeah. I and mean, I'm very passionate about the planning and wealth management component. Some other people might be like, no, I manage your investments, like your tax and everything else. Like, Talk to somebody else. I don't touch that. So it's a fair question to ask somebody when you're working with them to say, how involved do you get? Will you answer questions directly with my accountant if they have questions? Will you work with my bookkeeper to send them transactions and that kind of thing? And you can ask those types of questions to see if it's the right fit. But the more of that that you can outsource when you're busy, the better. Yeah. 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 Very interesting. One final question on this, um, is you talked about like the, the second part of your criteria you talked about is like their competence, Mm -hmm. uh, and ability in this area. This is a world in financial planning, financial advising, where there's thousands of people and organizations doing this with largely the same messaging. How do you actually know whether this person is a real pro from like their competence perspective? Are you looking at like the volume of 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 serious business owners they work with? Is it like their years of experience? No, no, you, you just ask me, say, are you are you competent? Hundred <laughs> percent. And then they're like, I got you. Yeah. Okay. Um, it is a good question. Um, I think a lot of entrepreneurs have pretty good gut instincts on a lot of that stuff. And so I would say just be inquisitive, ask good questions and you can tell if somebody can only answer at like the surface level or if they can really get into the more granular details. And that'll usually give you an indication of if they really understand yeah. their stuff. You Danielle know, set your bar for you over the last <laughs> hour of you listening. So this, 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 this is the level right here. <laughs> well, it's a really good point and you can, this is, you can, parlay this skill into other things. I met with someone last week, an agency to do with podcast promo stuff. Just, just, I just was like, yeah, I'm curious. <laughs> and it was, it was exactly this. I was like, I had 10 pretty technical questions ready. It was a 30 minute meeting, not long, but I was like, if I just rattle these off, I'm going to know, even if I don't know the answers, yeah. I'm going to know if they don't know the answers yeah. also. Yeah. Like it's when in doubt, yeah. just pepper people <laughs> with good granular questions and see how quickly they react, see what kind of response they give you, you can tell when someone's skating through an answer. Yeah. yeah. And I think if people, you know, start to kind of BS their way through an answer to me, that's like a huge red flag. Totally. Like it's okay if, if you ask a really granular question, the person says, I'm actually not sure. Like, let me get back on that. I would take that any day, you know, versus yeah, yeah. kind of this glossed over answer where it didn't really give totally. me any well, conclusion. Well, it really depends. <laughs> yeah. Great. Yeah. So direct yeah. recommendation, uh, 
if you are thinking about this, maybe you just replay this episode, maybe at 1.5 times, I just take notes. I think we've talked about plenty of interesting, complex and compelling stuff to be able to just get, you know, how would you address this in this situation? How exactly would you go about that? Even just from the stuff that we talked about over the last hour. So that's awesome. Um, Danielle, this has been fantastic. We've, we've talked about a, a wide ranging set of challenges and issues that could come up. I don't think this is kind of the most maybe exciting topic in terms of like growth, but it is absolutely a super, super important one to have an awareness of because, you know, as we said at the beginning, it's not always about like your upside giant slam dunk wins. It's also about mitigating downside risk that's going to make you successful long term. So just in closing, um, you are an advisor. uh, You call it kind of like an investment advisor, but like a much more holistic approach at RBC Dominion Securities. Just uh, in closing, uh, where can people find you and and RBCDS and just just really quick like what are what is your guys broad scale core focus both across Canada and the US yeah, so um, I'll start with RBC, but RBC Dominion Securities is the largest wealth management firm in Canada. So they manage about $1.3 trillion in assets, so it's pretty big. Um, surprisingly, they're actually the sixth largest um, full-service U.S. advisory firm as well, with $358 billion in the U.S. Um, so it's a big, big machine. Um, there's approximately 2,000 advisors nationally, so I'm one of those advisors, and I run a discretionary wealth management practice here in Vancouver. Um, in terms of like my style, because every advisor would have a slightly different approach, um, vast majority of my clients are entrepreneurs, and they don't have a traditional pension. So whether it's now or in the future, at some point, they'll be relying on an investment portfolio to essentially provide that income stream when they do retire. Um, And we tend to get more involved in the broader wealth management, financial planning pieces as well, risk mitigation, and that is kind of more of a niche of ours. Um, In terms of getting a hold of people, so easiest way to find me is just through my website. You can search my name, and it'll show up on RBC's wealth uh, management website. And in terms of just general RBC contacts across the country. If in your local community you want to find a contact, I would start with the branch manager in your local Dominion Securities branch. She can explain to them what you're looking for and they can probably point you in the right direction. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, yeah. Danielle, this is so great. Thanks for joining us, Thank sharing for all, 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 all this wisdom. It's been really fantastic. Uh, all topics that in a really busy entrepreneurial world with a million things going on, always hard to find time for this kind of long-term planning stuff, but super important to do so. So thank you for sharing all these thoughts with us. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Danielle. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for watching this episode of Contractor Evolution. If you've already subscribed to our channel, consider sharing this episode with another contractor who you think needs to hear it. Paynet podcasts are produced by the Painted Contractors Association and are made possible by members and industry partners. To find out more about upcoming education opportunities or for more information about joining PCA, visit PCAPainted.org.